0: Welcome to What's Your Beef, a Beef Australia production. Each week we will introduce you to people living and working in the beef community and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic triannual event. Hello, I'm Jane Cuttahy. A lot has to be said for curiosity. It drives change and innovation, and in the case of today's guest, her whole career – Lisa Sharp is the CEO of Herefords Australia and comes from a fascinating marketing background that's seen her digging around cereal crop feeds for Uncle Toby's and pondering the way we think about red meat marketing for Meat and Livestock Australia. She's an energetic force to be reckoned with, though, as you'll find out, a career in food industries was the furthest thing from her mind.
1: Well, unlike so many of our... um producers that I've met over the years. Um, I'm not from the land. Um, I do come from a, um, a, uh, a proud pedigree of accountants, if you can believe it. So <laughs> we often hear about second and third generation um, farmers. Well, I'm a third generation accountant, which not a lot of people actually know. Um, I grew up on the outskirts of Melbourne uh, and no connection to agriculture. Um up until, I guess, I started my um, my working career.
0: Yeah, well, and, and that's the other thing. Are you an accountant by trade? Do you mean you're the third generation? I am, but well. I'm, I'm awful at it. Um. <laughs> well, and is that why you went into marketing? Then you just...
1: <laughs> no, I'm probably selling myself a little bit short. Now, I have um, a real... Always had a, a passion for economics and politics which is what I studied at university but when I um, was nearing the end of my career it was um, during the recession we had to have the one last century and there weren't a lot of jobs going you know in in the area of sort of macroeconomic policy so I did the sensible thing and followed dad and granddad and um, bolstered up my accounting and actually my very first role uh, outside of university was as as a a financial accountant Um, but I learned really quickly, Jane, that I was a little bit, I not wasn't bad at it, but I was a bit impatient and I, I have enormous respect for the profession. Um, it's important to, you know, to measure, you know, how a business is performing. But I i think I realised that I wanted to be less about measuring, you know, where the business was at or where the business had been and sort of wanted to get a little bit more into the driver's seat. And I was just so lucky to have an amazing amazing boss at the time who probably saw the what's the expression the um, round peg in the square hole and he saw in me um, a bit of chattiness um, a lot of curiosity and I think a bit of drive and he um, actually I guess created a role for me within the marketing team and um, I was so lucky because I was able to take all those you know accounting skills of sort of analysis and, and and questioning and I started to apply those looking at the effectiveness of it, um, media spend advertising activity um, pricing and promotional strategies and I realized as I started to work more and more with the marketing team that if you're lucky enough and I was lucky to be a, a marketeer in a you know a privately owned company um, in that case uh, uncle Toby's we have enormous enormous autonomy as marketeers you know we we got to research with mums and kids you know products that that they wanted we we got to develop them you know physically develop the products you know we got to cost them um we'd stand shoulder to shoulder on the production line you know testing them and then we had the fun bit you know the packaging and the advertising and i realized that's what i fell in love with marketing because it's it's like running your own little business and you know ultimately you're building a brand and and that's of value to the business and the company but every day you're responsible for that that profit and loss um, and I just I fell in love with marketing every aspect of it and um, that's how I fell into marketing and and it was through that role with Uncle Toby's um, which took me you know out of uh, out of Melbourne and into um, Wagania, um, on I guess on the border of Victoria and New South Wales and First opportunity to work with primary producers um, in the grains industry, and gee, you'll never meet harder working people. Um, And I, I really, I just enjoyed the work I did, but also who I who I worked for, which is you know those, um, you know those who are you know growing crops and. Yeah,
0: I loved it. That's so, I'm so glad you said Uncle Toby's because when you first started telling that story, I actually had imagined you working for an accountancy firm. And so I was like, gee, marketing for an accountancy firm, that's pretty dry. But then that actually, to have that role created for you with so much creative license as well as, you know, the nitty gritty, as you just said, that's, a, that's an extraordinary opportunity.
1: Yeah, I've... I've- I hope I use the word privilege when I tell that story because <laughs> I was, um, I feel very, very privileged, uh, but just just absolutely loved it. And, you know, at that time, you know, Uncle Toby's, um, Uncle Toby's is now a brand owned by Nestle, so part of a multinational, but then just it was still, um, you know, an, a, an Australian owned company and, you know, really just high levels of, of, of autonomy, um, you know, and was a real innovator, both in its product, but Uncle Toby's was quite um, a ground, uh, quite groundbreaking in its use of working with athletes, building long-term sponsorships. You know, to align the brand with those lovely values um, that mums want. You know, healthy kids, active kids. Yes, it was fun. I got exactly. to meet lots have... of uh, interesting people along the
0: way. Yeah, absolutely, you would have. And um, and as you say, I'm just trying to think of all the Uncle Toby's ads that I've seen over the years that they've done that very kick well. Kick it to
1: so...
0: me. Kick it to me. <laughs> yes, that one.
1: <laughs> that vitamin Yeah,
0: It was kick. Oh my goodness. Yes, and that's the the kind of work that you that you were doing. So how how then did you switch over to because I think there was Coca Cola and then MLA. That's that's mm. quite still all. Food, if you consider yeah. some of it food, um, but you know, in that <laughs> there's a slight dig there, but um, you know, food production, uh, in some way. So, that, did you did you consciously move because of that, or just followed the job and the role in the in the marketing sense?
1: Look, I certainly, um, Uncle Toby's, uh, from Uncle Toby's, actually worked for Craft Foods, uh, so I, I I was definitely really enjoying a career in what's called fast-moving consumer goods. Um, you know, fast-moving consumer goods is underpinned by, you know, there's all that creativity around advertising and promotion, but actually it's underpinned by enormous amounts of data. Um, and I, I've given away the trade secret that I am a qualified accountant. I really enjoy fast-moving consumer goods. And really that's what took me to uh, Coca-Cola. And, you know, when it comes to fast-moving consumer goods, you um, strong brands um, and uh, an absolute powerhouse when it comes to marketing and promotion it, it was a wonderful you know too good an opportunity to to not to not join uh, coca-cola um, you know there are there's many books have been written around the, the success of coca-cola as a, as a marketing organization you know I, I think for me what i took from my time at coca-cola was you know it was a business that was so incredibly aware of what made it successful so you know at its heart while it has strong brands it's very much a distribution business so it's really interesting it gave me a chance to look at different business models i think coca-cola was also a company that really looked ahead It, it forced itself to look ahead 10 or 20 years um and you know during the time i was there they made some really significant changes to their portfolio you know to introduce more um I guess what they would describe as healthier beverages, healthier than beverages, so water, sports drinks, um, you know, really trying to understand where the trends were going. And it was also my first exposure to working for a company that, you know, was asking itself the hard questions around um, social licence. So it was... um, yeah, that was, you know, it's really some interesting learnings for me there.
0: When you um, say socialising through mm-hmm. sh- sugar, sugar consumption yeah, and health-wise and taking uh, yes. that on board when your core product is probably not viewed as – is usually the example people use when, you know, um, what to kick first when you're trying to be healthy.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's, that, that's right, Jane. It's, you know, it was – I think the lesson for me is, you know, successful businesses – don't rest on their laurels. You know, they stop and critically assess, you know, how did we get here? Where are we going next? What might stop us? And so I think obviously sugar was something um, as, you know, really there was growing awareness around um, obesity and childhood obesity. But it was also looking at um, environment and that's why I felt they were quite ahead of their time. So really starting to look at, you know, plastics and how do you reduce the use of plastics, you know, how do you manage, um, you know, the the cardboard, you know, the amount of water that you're using in production. Um, So I I thought, um, you know, I'd take my hat off to them in terms of some of the work and I think some of the early work they were doing in in that space. Um, But I was very lucky when I worked with Coca-Cola. They acquired... um, company called SPC Ardmona and that took me back to um, working with primary producers uh, because SPC Ardmona, uh, you know, has brands like Goulburn Valley, SPC, um, Ardmona, Tomatoes. Uh, yeah, so I, I really enjoy food. Um, and you, I've don't always you always enjoyed-
0: make – I'm not sure if I actually really realised that they owned those brands too because you think about them, well, as Australian brands a lot of the time. So that – I didn't realise that even that the, that they owned them.
1: That's right. So for me, you know, with Coca Cola, what one learns as a marketeer is, you know, you think globally, so it's global marketing strategy, and you adapt locally. So it was that was great to really learn and and uh, hone those marketing skills. But it was wonderful to go uh, and work for SPC out mine where they were all Australian brands um, and, you know, work again uh, and support, you know, Australian primary producers. So I loved, I really enjoyed my time. And, again, that took me back into the regions um, working in and around the Goulburn Valley region in Victoria. So, yeah, I, uh, I very much enjoyed that. Um, and just, again, that it, that it was during a period of a sustained drought, so really, you know, understanding some of the, challenges, um, you know, some of these trees take eight years to bear fruit and when there isn't enough water, you know, just, you know, watching some of those very difficult decisions and, um, you know, as a company as well, you know, you, you want to ensure that you can guarantee consistency of quality and consistency of supply to your customers and having to think about well, what are the options if we can't source locally or we can't source in Australia. So, yeah, some really, you know, um, some, some great learnings there. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But, um,
1: this is a this is a long way to and uh,
0: livestock Australia. I oh, know I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I was to say right. So you're back in the regions and dealing with primary production. Yeah. What what attracted you to MLA? What was oh, what was the opportunity look, there?
1: Look, uh, MLA on the role. I was just about ready to hang up my boots in fast-moving consumer goods because I'd had some some you know the roles, um, but, you know became a little bit bigger over time and more responsibility and. And uh, had two young children and was just about ready to hang up my boots when I saw an ad for a job and I was absolutely drawn into it because it felt like everything that I love um, and I think I'm not too bad at um, in one. And it was a a role uh, to lead um, MLA's um, uh, what they called central marketing and industry insights, so um, responsibility for the global marketing of Australian beef, lamb and goat meat. But it was also heading up um, Meat and Livestock Australia's market information services. And I think I've already said once how much I like the data and how data and insights can really supercharge your business and supercharge your brand. And the opportunity to make some contribution to an industry as large and important as the Australian red meat industry through provision of information, but also the opportunity to be part of some of those um, wonderful marketing campaigns. It was just, I was just so drawn to it. Uh, and I, from memory, the the application was closing that day, and I I saw it
0: that afternoon. Oh, and that doesn't and sound like uh, a quick. There's no quick application for that either, no, is it?
1: That's... No. And uh, so
0: I, I I rang and made a desperate plea, and
1: uh, I. My gosh, it feels like home. I absolutely love working in the red meat industry. Uh, that, was a, that was a wonderful, wonderful job.
0: Uh, and uh,
1: this well, is, here I am, I think, eight oh, or yes. nine years later.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> I really want to get into the Herefords Association, but I just want to quickly ask you about, just about um, – your your time at MLA because it is it's such a big beast of an organisation and um, producers are fairly divided in their opinions and probably due to their understanding of what MLA does. But now that you've really witnessed both sides of that um, of that organisation, do you really think that the average Australian cattle producer has an understanding of the of the role of MLA and the and the place that it has in the industry?
1: Yeah, it's a really really good really good question, Jane. I, I think the the challenge is it's you know Meat and Livestock Australia uh undertakes, you know, has a really clearly defined role, you know, which is to invest in you know research, development, adoption and marketing programs. But there are other organisations, you know, nationally and at state level who fill important roles around industry representation, um, you know, to government and um, advocacy on behalf of producers. And because there are many organisations, I think there is a level of confusion about who does what. And, you know, I, I think that does cause confusion and frustration for, for, for levy payers. Um, you know, they're sort of expecting perhaps that's MLA's role when actually um, MLA by its very nature as a research and development corporation uh, with very clear uh, defined in legislation what it can and can't do it's just not well understood and I think that does cause some some confusion for for levy pairs I think linked to that MLA remit is from genetics uh, which no doubt we'll talk a little bit more about from genetics all the way through to an Australia Day land campaign and there are so many program areas and so many projects that I think it can it is you know it can be hard to communicate all of those um activities and then the so what now what what does that mean for producers so that's that's a challenge as well you know when you've got a, 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 a an RDC like MLA working across so many areas you know just Um, being able to communicate uh, to producers, you know, what the work is and and what it means for them. So I think, you know, in short, it's a a big industry with lots of participants um, and there is a little bit of ambiguity or uh, confusion around roles and responsibilities. And then I think just, you know, MLA has such a, a broad remit. I'm MLA's number one fan.
0: So now, you know, you've gone from this very, well, very high level, very fast-paced marketing career after being an accountant and you are now Hereford, the Hereford Association of Australia's CEO. So how did how did that role come about? Oh, that's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Look,
1: I, I um, like anyone who knows me, particularly in the last few years of my time at Meat and Livestock Australia would say I was, um, what is it, a jack of all trades, master of none. So I think over time with a lot of my marketing roles, you, you do become more of a, a generalist. And I, I mentioned earlier that in my mind being a, a brand manager or a product manager is, is akin to running, you know, your own your own business, so I've become very Comfortable and I guess competent over the years, at, you know, effectively, you know, building brands and 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 you know, helping to make money and write strategy um, and execute it. So I did have an opportunity. Uh, the Heritage Australia Board approached me to assist them with the development of some longer term strategy, which is something that I I very much enjoy. Uh, and just through through that process, you know, I I mentioned I was trying to hang up my boots <laughs> with two children uh, a few years ago. Uh, after a really busy time with mla i was probably looking to you know maybe not travel quite so much and have such a demanding role so starting that strategy work with herefords australia um it really um I got the appetite again um, that i wanted the opportunity to um, help to lead a business and you know i saw a wonderful opportunity to uh you know for, for a foundation breed in the australian beef cattle industry you know a breed that can address all the major profit drives, drivers in commercial beef enterprises, I got hungry again and thought I'd, I'd like to be part of, you know, leading this business uh, and, um, yeah, really helping the breed continue to fulfil its potential. So um, wow. And then here yeah, you are. So here
0: then, I am. Uh, Hereford's very excited about that marketing uh, skills and your, well, red meat marketing and general management skills. So how did that Set the tone for your tenure because that was—they're both quite different skill sets, but obviously, Hereford's needed needed you for a specific uh, role.
1: Yeah, look, I think that in the, the first instance, that sort of you know, there's the the operational aspects of general management, but I think the the linkage between the marketing skills and what Hereford's was was looking for is, I think, really successful marketeers are very very curious and they consistently ask themselves, ask the question, you know, you know, what market am I going after? You know, who am I targeting? And what do they want, need and value? And having defined that, you know, where is the gap? Um, And is this a gap that can be filled by us? And so I think Some of those marketing strategy skills have actually been, um, I believe, quite helpful as we've been working through breed strategy as well as company strategy, Um, remembering, you know, the role of a breed society and they're all, you know, um, they'll all be a little bit different, you know, but for us, you know, the the role of the breed society is absolutely to drive demand for um, uh, Hereford genetics we're a member-based organisation as well so really thinking about what do our what do our members want need and value and how do we bring all of those things together so I think um in terms of how that set the tone for my tenure you know the you know the first job was to really work through you know being curious asking
0: asking those questions and did just, you know much about Hereford's when you started the job oh
1: look I'm a from a red meat perspective I've more of a beef more at the beef end and yeah. if you think about it
0: yeah. i know that's what i was just well you know that's that's a that's a big jump um but one that you'd obviously smashed so you keep, keep, keep going i just wondered whether you'd had anything to do with hereford's beforehand no look
1: look certainly in the i mean this is the Great thing about working for Meat and Livestock Australia, it is such a broad portfolio. So, as a member of the executive, you know we'll have seen lots of um, program areas and different projects. So, we had a level of familiarity, you know, with obviously the different breeds, um, some of the features and attributes of the different breeds, and then you know, certainly a good level of understanding around the important role genetics can play, both in helping, you know, individual producers um, and breeds improve their genetic gain. But certainly at MLA, we're thinking more holistically about what role can genetics play in helping the industry, um, you know, improve its productivity and profitability. But certainly in more recent years, you know, what role can genetics play in helping to I guess, address some of those question marks around uh, emissions, etc. So I had a good, uh, I'll, I'll say a, a 101 level uh, of the breed, but certainly a, a real appreciation of the seed stock sector and the important role genetics genetics can play. But, yeah, I do feel as though I've gone from from the plate um, right right back down to the to the paddock but i enjoy that and i i enjoy you know the role i can play in helping to connect the dots because you know we need to you know in all parts of the red meat value chain i'd like to think everybody's asking that question is who is my customer and what do they want need and value so whether you're in the feedlot feedlot extensive production seed stock sector that they're the questions that we all ask um and certainly we need to understand what our consumers and customers want need and value you know for the their Australian beef to be successful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. do Do you think consumers really worry about do they care about the individual breeds, or do you think it is lopped together as red meat, uh, chicken meat, and pork, uh, or even it, probably all all meat industries together?
1: Oh, great question. I'll, I'll tackle I'll tackle it in two parts. So I think I was thinking a little bit about what what was some of the key insights from my time at Meat and Livestock Australia, particularly around consumers, uh, because I was very fortunate to have some responsibilities with respect to understanding and researching consumers across all key markets. One one sort of key insight, you know, thinking about that time on MLA was just, you know, in a really good way watching that ongoing evolution from beef as a commodity to, to beef um, as, a, as a more sort of um, differentiated um, or more premium offer or branded beef offers. And I think that's really exciting in terms of unlocking value, um, you know, not only for the brand owners but for everyone in the value chain. But what I also saw through that was as these sort of branded offers are emerging, the primary drivers for consumers are more about the attributes of, of the beef not so much the cattle. You know, so consumers are thinking about, you know, they're thinking about cut, they're thinking about taste, they're thinking about texture. But more recently, you know, part of that differentiation was also around provenance. So where, you know, where where did this come from and and how was it raised? So I've probably seen some of those aspects, if you will, um, are more likely to be, purchase drivers for consumers rather than breed so hopefully that makes sense so i'm delighted to see you know this ongoing evolution towards differentiation and that you know beef really standing you know sort of standing tall with its
0: its strengths around taste and texture and and flavor
1: I think that does set us apart from other popular proteins. And do you think there's um, potential in
0: that clean and green image too? Do you think we push that enough that, that there is a predominant part of the industry that, it, that can produce a very healthy product? I come back
1: to understanding what do consumers want? You know, want need and value, and what we saw time and time again. Number one, that you you think it's a given, but we should never take it as a given. Consumers want their food to be safe, so that's part of that clean, green, and safe. The the clean is a bit of a proxy um, in export markets for that Australia is an island continent, um, that it's away from you know pollutants and all those other things, and that because it's an island um, in a fairly remote part of the world, it has a natural protection, you know, against against you know, disease, etc. So that's been a big part of our identities. So that's the you know sort of that that clean aspect. You know, green's interesting, and it's taken on um, I think different interpretation over time. You know, yes, consumers across many markets, you know, green matters more to them now than perhaps it did a few years ago. I think the ongoing opportunity, both at an industry level level and for individual brands, is you just need to be able to back up your green credentials. And I think that sort of level of not just not just tell me you're green, but how would you show me your green? So I think it has uh, been a wonderful uh, platform positioning for, for Australian beef in, in export markets. I don't think it's as perhaps as, as differentiated as it was a number of years ago. So just as community and um, consumer expectations change. Um, I think there's definitely, you know, opportunities um, at an industry and at a brand level to, you know, to put a little bit more um, veracity behind those claims, yeah.
0: What role do societies, including Herefords, play in engagement both at an industry level and as, with a social licence to operate? You've already touched on a few of those um, points in the, in the previous question, but um, I, am, I am intrigued to know a bit more about how you see the, the individual breed societies playing a role in that.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great question. Look, it's a big it's a big industry and I touched on that when we spoke about all those different organisations, um, all with, with roles to play. Breed societies, you know, have um large and in, in many cases growing um, you know, membership base and, and through that we do have an opportunity, you know, to connect um directly um, with you know, the seed stock sector, but also um, certainly in our case, uh, you know, we have commercial producers who are members members as well. So we certainly, you know, have have a, have a role to play. Um, I think in a really obvious way, tools like um, or resources like BreedPlan uh, that deliver um, estimated breeding values and those estimated breeding values can help, uh, you know, the seed stock sector and certainly commercial producers You know, with their, um, with some of their selection decisions. So I think that one of the roles that breed societies, including Herefords, can play is to really support the adoption and extension of some of these wonderful resources um, and ultimately in you know, the role we can play working alongside other um, other organisations is to help the industry achieve some of its um, genetic gain uh, goals. So that's one example where I think certainly um, through that sort of direct membership model, having access to resources and really supporting um, adoption and extension of those, that's one, you know, certainly an important role for, for breed societies. I think with respect to... Um, you know, social license, uh, certainly at Herefords Australia, you know, we, we do invest in um, research uh, and development. Um, and we also collaborate, um, you know, with providers, you know, like Meat and Livestock Australia, you know, in projects that can help us better understand the role genetics can play in helping to boost sustainability credentials. So, you know, whether that's around better understanding net feed intake, um, looking at fertility looking at feed conversion, you know, all understanding all of those, um, both in a breed context, but in an Australian beef cattle context, it's really essential, um, you know, if we're to really look at, um, you know, reducing our emissions intensity. So I think there are two examples, you know, both at an applied level, you know, how do you take a, a mature tool like breed plan and estimated breeding values? How can we help to drive adoption and extension through to that investment or co-investment in research projects, you know, to gather that all important data and evidence, you know, we spoke about, you know, clean and green before, Um, you know, that we are investing in those types of research projects to really help boost um, the sustainability credentials.
0: How many members does Herefords Australia have? We're about 1,500 uh, members. That's a lot and that's a lot of breeders and there's obviously a lot of commercial breeders that aren't necessarily part of the association but watch and are very engaged with what you do. How do you as a a society... um, engage with producers in, you know, a very busy world in in terms of innovation and and future targets. How are you communicating?
1: Oh if you had the answer for this, I'd give you lots of money. Well,
0: you've answered everything <laughs> so beautifully up till now. I figured the silver bullet ones would be fine, Lisa.
1: <laughs> well, can I, I might start by saying, actually, our producers, and it, it reminds me so much of um, working for levy payers at Livestock Australia. You know, they're a, they're a diverse, our members are a diverse group. They'll all have different mindsets and motivations when it comes to, you know, perhaps even something like the, the use or value of estimated using estimated breeding values so I think the first thing to understand is you know um, we will have a it's a it's a diverse audience we'll have very you know different motivations and mindsets and as a result really different communication preferences and I know you've asked me how do we engage well engage isn't here if it's talking at our members it's it is engaging it's about having a conversation so while it's not easy um, and it takes time you know I I think one of the things that we find most effective is um, creating those face to face opportunities. And depending on what the issue or the opportunity is, you know, that face to face opportunity may not be a Hereford staff member talking to a member. It may actually be looking at how we can bring two members together because those, that peer to peer, engagement that sort of word of word of mouth is i'd actually say is probably one of the strongest ways to get the conversation flowing to encourage practice change if if that's the objective um to help us with some of our adoption and extension goals so real people in real places talking to each other i actually find is probably one of the most effective
0: crazy getting people do you feel like especially with your background in marketing and communications has it done a bit of a 180 From a few years ago where people do just want to switch off the noise and concentrate on core business and to do that it is do you find that even the society as an example it's more of a facilitation role as you say bringing peers and people together
1: as a marketeer you know you're looking at there are many different communications channels and and you know we you know it's not easy but we look to monitor the effectiveness of of all of those so you know, I think it, the world did go mad a few years ago, where it was just blast everybody with all the information all of the time. I think we've pulled, we definitely pulled back, um, and really being, as you say, doing a little bit of that 180. That sometimes less is more, and really thinking about, um, you know, what are some of those individual preferences. But it's it is important to also to being curious, um, thinking a little bit about putting our shoe our, our feet into their shoes. So you know. A bit like this podcast today you know we know many of your listeners will be you know on the tractor or in the car so you know maybe using podcasts a little bit more um the running long webinars that are only you, you know you can only watch if you've got great you know great connectivity and you're sitting at your desk you know that's not realistic um and it's about understanding some people just want the headlines you know, whereas for other people they want all the hygiene you know they want enormous steps of information so just being able to to really understand you know walk in the shoes and think about creating those opportunities um you know where our members are where our you know commercial producers are and then offering choice yeah so there's a a few learnings um a few observations
0: yeah and challenging ones too like that that's a lot to to work work around and what do you see as the greatest sort of challenge for the beef industry in the next little while considering there are so many uh issues happening at the moment including biosecurity and people's tendency to to not to not engage with with media and communications probably as much as we did a few years ago
1: yeah no look uh, i think number
0: one would have been for me and it is top of mind but um
1: you know, even thinking about other strategy work I've been involved with. I think one of the challenges for the Australian beef industry is to, you know, to to maintain uh world class biosecurity and a disease free status. Um, you know, we export seventy five percent of our beef to some of the highest value markets in the world. Um you know the criticality of that cannot be underestimated. I think linked to that that we are and you know we do export such large volumes of our wonderful Australian beef that you know one of the challenges is how do we remain competitive um, against those other um, beef producing nations uh, in terms of our, our our cost base as well as you know, um, you know while it's wonderful to be you know in a remote part of the world it also presents um, some cost and complexity from a supply chain point of view. I think you um, you know, it's it's not new. I don't have any new um, challenges for you, Jane, but it's about people. You know, how do we attract and retain more people in our industry, you know, in, in all, all aspects, all jobs? Um, and then back to that point about remaining competitive, you know, um, it, making sure, you know, we've got the, the skills and support to enable practice change. Um, so whether it's the genetic gain that I spoke of, um, whether it is about maintaining our, our biosecurity controls, whether it's adopting, um, you know, a new widget within processing facilities. Um, so how do we enable practice change? I think it's a big one and maybe we've forgotten about it a little bit with, you know, what's on our doorstep at the moment, but our ability as an industry to adapt to climate variability will be critically important to our success. And last but far from least, it says the market here down the other end of the phone, <laughs> we must maintain our support from our, our consumers, our customers and the community. You know, we, we absolutely are and want to be seen as having a really important role in food security, but but equally that this industry has a really important and valuable role to play um, you know, as sort of environmental stewards and our and our care of the, the natural resource base. So
0: And it comes back without, to social license too, yeah. which is something that, you know, the generation before didn't need to consider on, on anywhere near the scale as we do now. Well,
1: that's it. I mean, if, if whether we like it or not, money makes the world go round. So, you know, part of that community is the investment community you know, who will be answerable to shareholders. So they will be looking for that really strong data and evidence around, you know, um, the role we play in caring for the natural resource base. So
0: Now, look, this is probably the biggest question that you'll be asked in this interview uh, so far, Um, and it's something that we've asked all of our participants in the What's Your Beef podcast over its tenure. But I would like to know what your favourite cut of beef is, And it's not for a fancy dinner party. It's for your average uh, weeknight cooking for the kids or the family at home. What are you choosing from the butcher and how do you like to cook it? Oh, well, we've got kids. So our date night is steak night at home. Oh, delight. So...
1: I'm I'm um I'm actually going to say I feel it, and I know that's not you know what every household, including ours, can afford every night of the week. But it is something that is um yeah part of our household, and it is my favourite.
0: Yes, <laughs> well of course it's I feel it. How is it not going to be your favourite? Uh, is don't it? Know <laughs> I I'm well, answering honestly. No, that's and that's great. And I think, you know, our fearless leader, Bryce Cam, came out and said his favourite was mince, and I still don't believe him really. Uh, I thought he oh, just that's... made a very savvy kind of uh, twist on a steak tartare or something like that.
1: To, re- to reassure your listeners, <laughs> mince, we have at least read three red meat meals a week and mince features in two of them and we do Taco Tuesday, <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. And also, I think it's now. I think it's the number two dish uh, in Australian households: spaghetti bolognese. So, is it the number two? Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Spaghetti no I wasn't having a go at you I'm impressed I would love to have I feel it and I live um quite more regularly than I do and I live on a cattle station so uh, but, but well done, Lisa. we don't get to go out we don't get to go out you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right you don't need to justify it. you own that decision <laughs> well look Lisa it's been an absolute delight to, to have you on the podcast today thank you so much for your time and I look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the in the future my pleasure Jade I hope that was uh, enjoyable thank you so much <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you're enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.